Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, whether you like it or not, is Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. It's a solid week, Walker. It was a solid week. No, I mean, going forward. We're going to have Purim, International Women's Day, and Daylight Savings. Oh, we're top of the charts. <laughs> it was also a good week last week. Lots of games played. Lots of games played. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to mix things up. We're going to talk about games this week. We're going to talk about the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, that the game we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the mini games we played last week. Then the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic. The topic is new and improved. This is about what is the margin by which, what's the threshold for warranting a new edition, a new printing, what games we think are companies trying to pull a fast one on us, which ones we think are legitimate. We will adjudicate all these matters. Settle them for once and for all. And report to the proper authorities. Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, to the day, we reviewed a game called Tricarion by Mind Clash Games. Tricarion at the time was my least favorite Mind Clash game. And I felt that they had been on sort of an upward ascent, right? Because there was Tricarion, there was Tricarion, there was Anachrony, and then there was Cerebra. And I felt that that was just a sort of an upward trajectory. Uh, and then came the dinosaurs. And then Perseverance that we persevered through. Something like that. But Tricarion's fine. It's, it's you know, a two to three hour heavy-ish planning worker placement game. Not necessarily my cup of tea or something I'm up to all the, all the time. But it's well designed. And it's a reasonably successful implementation of the sort of performance euro. Performance euro is kind of a step past order of fulfillment. Instead of having an order you need to fill, you need to gal your stuff in a row. And usually, I think of this in the same intellectual dynasty as Princes of Florence, where you need to have infrastructure that you can reuse and some other thing, and some people and some infrastructure you can't reuse and you put on these shows. Anyway, I know that you've played it since we reviewed it. I have. I enjoy it. Like I said, it's interesting getting, because I like the book and the different paths you can take through the different uh, tricks you can do and how you can sort of link them together with, you know, same sort of components and or stuff that sort of gives you these combos that you need to get a decent score. Have you tried any of the expansions past the Dark Alley? Because the Dark Alley was published at the same time as the game. And since then, there have been other Tricarian expansions. Do you have any experience with those? I do not. Yeah. Standard Mind Clash procedure, they tend to publish with a number of modules or expansions in the box, and in this case, when they did the reprint, they published more expansions, but we don't really have any experience with that. The base game that we got, as a note, was a review copy from the publisher, 
And I have to say, like, I'm still, generally speaking, a fan of Mind Clash as a publisher, but The Shine has definitely gone off a little bit. Now they're basically, in my mind, a 50-50 publisher. Big fan of Anacrity, big fan of Cerebria, but Tricarion I could take or leave, and Perseverance did not appeal to me very much. And so while I'm looking forward to their future output, they're no longer at the same top-tier level they used to be. They're no longer a no-questions-asked. Exactly, exactly. So we'll wait and see. The next thing coming up from Mind Clash Games is going to be Voidfall, uh, featuring the design team of David Serzi and Nigel Buckle, the same people who who brought us Imperium. This is not Imperium the Contention or Dune Imperium. This is Imperium simply... Anyway, moving on. (laughs) What did you play last week, Walker? Mark, the games we played last week, you showed me a game called Deities by Gary Kim and put out by Mandu Games. This is like an interesting, I guess you could say, tile-laying game in a way. You're playing tiles, you're trying to get these nice chains of uh, resources in order for you to put out temples and towers and walls in order to fulfill certain you know, points or dump out your tableau, or maybe it's not a tableau, who knows anymore. And... uh, (laughs) <laughs> you, you also get to as you as you put out these uh interesting little miniatures of buildings you're also uncovering you know, scoring opportunities yeah you play a tiling game that's vaguely reminiscent of othello you want large links and there's going to be tiles flipping in the middle and that'll give you resources and then you're building three different kinds of buildings the dynamic of the three different buildings are surprisingly straightforward and yet surprisingly rewarding walls give you new tableau-ish abilities Temples give you new scoring opportunities. You pick up endgame scoring conditions. And towers are just flat points, plus the guarantee that you're going to control the towers, because on top of all of other th- these things going on, fundamentally, most of the scoring boils down to some form of area majority. And you might care about building on certain types of terrain. You might care about building certain types of buildings. You might care about controlling quadrants. It's very simple. I played it twice last week amongst gamers of lots of different levels of hobbyist experience, and a great time was had each time. It's reasonably easy to teach. It's very quick. In a full four-player game, you're only playing seven rounds, which at the start of the game doesn't feel like nearly enough, but things do tend to proceed in a nice clip. On the face of it, it seems dubious that you can build buildings fast enough to make it worth it. But you can build a building more or less every round. Yeah, it ramps up awful quick. Yeah. And unlike a lot of other Euros where you can build a building more or less every round, and so it feels like either point salad are relatively uh, artificially too balanced, you know, or the the top player with experience only gets a couple more uh, points than the bottom player who is playing the game for the first time. There is realm for specialization, lots of room for clever plays. I think Deities, so far, uh, seems to be a very, very solid light, light middle Euro game. Yeah, uh, Gary Kim has designed quite a few games, only one of which I've played before. Rising 5, it was sort of like a deduction type Oh, game. he did Rising 5? He did Rising 5. It was like an app-driven deduction game, which I find interesting, If, but, you know, it wasn't our thing. You know, there's lots of people that like that type of game. Sure, but... radically different style of game, that's for sure. Yes. I, I, for one, am a fan of any references to dumplings, so Mandu Games is definitely a publisher I'm in the mood to watch. So they're, they're a Korean publisher. They put out a lot of different designs. This is an import that has been making the rounds in some North American retailers. And so I was, I was eager to snatch up a copy. Uh, the production is interesting. I mean, I like the plastic buildings. The colors are uh, very bright. <laughs> it is a cheerful community you're building. Yes. I'm just saying that when you have 
buildings from multiple players and the same space, which you can have over the course of competition, the overall effect is, shall we say, close to garish. And anthropomorphic animals, because every game has to have them. <laughs> it's true. Every game, you play nominally as these deities, and every deity is some sort of uh, <laughs> some sort of anthropomorphic animal. That element, though, is subdued. Most of the individuals that are represented in a game of deities are, in point of fact, the human workers that you can draft into your tableau. So it's not it's not overboard like a lot of the other. I adaptations. thought the art was very full of character for how abstract the game was. I thought you know there's. Quite yeah, a... all the board elements are entirely abstract. Most of the actual personality from the individuals comes from the aforementioned tiles when you build walls and things like that. Uh, all told, I really like the production. It's very, very expensive for a domestic audience, but I'm glad to experience it. I don't have a good sense of sort of a Korean design aesthetic. I don't know to what extent there is one. I don't know if Gary, Gary Kim is working in that idiom. Uh, but if this is in any way representative of some of the original designs that Mandu Games is putting out, uh, I'd be very curious to try some more. Agreed. And that was Dades, designed by Gary Kim and published by Mandu Games. Got to try a game called Manhattan. I'd played this game before several years ago, but it was reintroduced to me. This is a game by Andreas Seyfarth, he of Puerto Rico fame. And this was designed in, and published in 1994. And so, to my mind, I stress this because 94 is an important year. This is the last year pre-El Grande pre-Settlers. So the hobby market, especially as far as Eurogames were concerned, was radically different before 1995. Because there was a big sea change. Uh, you know, pre-Settlers, post-Settlers is, is, is kind of a big deal. And... Manhattan is a very stripped down area majority game where you are just building buildings every time you every turn you play a card and that'll put out a, a plastic building piece. And if it's the case that you have as many floors of a given building as anybody else and you're on top, you control the building. And so a lot of it is about timing, which is not something that I really approve of in area majority games generally. Because area majority games already have the problem whereby it's best to go late in the round. And yeah, you can even that out by having a start player go around. And we'll be talking about this, I think, uh, a little bit more about other games in, in the future. But you can't always be guaranteed that the big moves, the big plays will be available to you in every round. So if it so happens that due to random draw or just board position that the turn that you happen to be last, nothing much happens. Whereas the turn where you're in lead happens to be the one where a lot of the decisive plays get happen, that can feel very unsatisfying, and it can sort of exploit some of the structural imbalances almost inherent in area majority games. And I feel that in Manhattan, to be frank. Uh, not a lot is going on so that when things do happen, they can be very, very consequential. It's a low-scoring game, generally speaking, and so to not have the right card at the right time or to be in the wrong seating order at the wrong time can be very, very consequential. It's inoffensive. Uh, very light, very quick, very characteristic of the sort of German aesthetic of the 90s, especially pre-95, uh, but not something that I would ever request or seek out. Uh, Manhattan was republished in 2018 in a new edition with pieces that almost make it look like Rolling Heights, sort of semi-translucent colored plastic instead of the solid colored plastic of the original Hans and Gluck edition. But overall, I'd say that Manhattan is not necessarily to my taste. This is Manhattan, designed by Andreas Seyfarth, originally published in 94 by Hans and Gluck. Mark was nice enough to show me another game designed by Tori Brown. This is called Votes for Women. This is published by Fort Circle Games, and it, and it pushes to reenact sort of the women's suffrage and their, their push to uh, uh, enact the 19th Amendment. Which, in the United States. In the United States to give women the right to vote. 
Well, in in the Constitution, even there were several states that already allowed women to vote, but to get it into the Constitution, this was the the big push. Right. My understanding was there was a bit of a, a, a difference of opinion as to whether or not the women in those states could vote federally, because the states get to administer elections, but by the same token, it, it was a mess. Entirely of their own making. Anyway, <laughs> I have to say, though, before we get into the actual design of the game, this is a Fort Circle Games' uh, second published design that we played. The first was Shores of Tripoli, which was a very lovely design, but it was just cards, a board, and some wooden pieces. And the cards and the board and the wooden pieces in Votes for Women are still very, very nice, but included in addition to a separate booklet of historical and designer's notes, which parenthetically every game should have. Ideally, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be designer's notes for every game in existence. There, I find them fascinating, and I always find them a good read, whether I like the game or not. But setting on top of that, it includes about a dozen reproductions of historical documents, sample ballots from various referenda, letters written either in support or in opposition of, of various suffra uh, suffragist causes. It's really interesting, and I have to say that in terms of historical games, this has raised the bar considerably. I'm not ever going to be able to look at the contents of a historical game ever again, certainly not the games of GMT and of DVG and all those other war game publishers without thinking, but there's lots of other stuff you could have put in here. <laughs> I've seen what Fort Circle's done. What, what, where, where are my little, my little tchotchkes, my little historical documents that, that are meant to represent primary sources? What's going on here? Anyhow. So this had a very much feel of a Twilight Struggle or a game like that, of that ilk where knowing the cards would give you a little bit of advantage. You would know because some of the cards play against each other, you know, if there are certain other laws in place or other acts or whatever, they call them all sorts of different things, knowing that they're going to come up, knowing other things could be canceled by other cards. All of these things are going to give you advantages. But overall, I, I thought it worked out great. So I would compare it to 1960, The Making of the President, in that it seeks to take the sort of card-driven style introduced by Twilight Struggle and by other card-driven war games and make it a quicker, more approachable, easier-to-play sort of endeavor. 1960 Making the President, I found a very frustrating affair, largely because of the structure of federal elections in the United States. You know, and a federal election in the U.S. for president doesn't make for a good area majority game because you're just going to be dumping votes into Pennsylvania and New York. I mean, that, that's just the way of things. Fortunately... The system of votes for women, although very similar, you have some sort of geographical location where your campaigner is, and you then start dumping influence into various specific states. In order to ratify a constitutional amendment, every state is equivalent to every other state, so you don't have that same structural problem, and you're encouraged to play the entire board as best as possible. Yes, you have some historical advantages. The anti-suffragist movement starts out with an advantage in the South, and the pro-suffrage movement starts with an advantage in the Northeast, obviously. But even within those contours, you're encouraged to play the entire board, and so I find that, that they chose a historical subject that is far better suited to this kind of area-majority game. Now, going back to the history a little bit, you talked about having to know the deck. I find that very much like Twilight Struggle, having even the cursory knowledge of the suffrage movement that I do, and I, I know practically nothing, one of the things that I said as we were starting up is I wonder how they are going to represent the schism in the suffrage movement represented by the 15th Amendment. I didn't say it in terms of the 15th Amendment because I couldn't remember which one it was, but that was the one that granted African Americans the right to vote enshrined to the Constitution for the first time. And this was, in many ways, very deleterious to the suffrage cause because they couldn't quite decide how they 
felt about black women to, to put, not to put too fine a point on it. It was not one of their finest moments <laughs> as an organization. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened over the course of the game. That was great. Uh, similarly, the Civil War features prominently. That didn't come up in the, quite the same way, but those historical touchstones are just marvelously integrated. Yeah, and they use it very well in the game. The, the suffrage movement had two different color tokens that they'd spread across the map, and, and you'd have different modifiers depending on, you know, just what you were talking about. And I should really uh, compare it more to Quartermaster General, because that's what I have more... Oh, sure. Uh, more... Experience with? Experience with. Because yeah. it has that fluff on the bottom of the cards that tells you, you know, where that battle took place and, and, mm-hmm. and little antidotes of, you know... Anecdotes. Anecdotes of the history of that of that particular spot in history. Yes, absolutely. I found it very, very useful because, again, I don't know a whole lot about the suffrage movement in the United States, uh, particularly as it pertains to the 19th century. And I know very little about American history in the 19th century broadly. 20th century, I know slightly more than nothing as opposed to nothing that I know in the, the 19th century. And it was, again, in terms of historical gaming, this is a new high watermark, I think, in terms of production. Really, really, really well done. And an enjoyable area majority game to boot. And I think you're right to put it in terms of the same class as games like Quartermaster General, as I put it, the same class as games like 1960 Making of a President, sort of the sort of pr- the inheritors of the of the tradition of the mechanisms of your card-driven war games. Because Twilight Struggle, despite the fact that it's not actually a con sim, feels its war gamey roots far more in the sense that it's got these fiddly crummy rules and it's a little bit more in depth, although still very abstracted. But then as you get slightly more abstract and more approachable game systems, you end up up with things like Votes for Women and Quartermaster General and 1960 Making of a President. And so I really enjoyed my experience. In order to sort of solidify my sense of the ebb and flow of a game, I'd really like to play the other side. It's strange, though, how approaching Votes for Women, I dreaded, I didn't end up playing the anti-suffrage side. I played as the suffragists for the first play, and you played as the anti-suffrage side. I dreaded the prospect of playing the anti-suffrage side in a way that I can't remember feeling for a while. And that's weird, because we play historical games where we represent terrible, terrible people all the time. This one felt a little bit different. <laughs> it's probably because it's a struggle that has, has continued and is still continuing to this day. Yeah, I think and so. so it's a little more than home. There's not, you know... I remember bringing out Colditz as a child where my father refused to have anything to do with Nazis. So that sort right. of, you know, plays back into that, you know, because it would hit closer to home for him. Of course. And so maybe that's the, the... No, I think you're right. Despite the fact that, that you know, the obvious World War II is the obvious comparison, right? Despite the fact that historically there's there's far closer connection to World War II, the issues, at least to our generation, seem far more settled. Some of them are false consensuses, of course, but... They seem far more settled than the fact that, sadly, the issues raised by the suffrage movement in the United States that started in the 1850s still have reverberations today, which is unfortunate, but such is the way of things. Anyway, I'm very, very pleased to have played Votes for Women. Looking forward to trying it again, especially from the other side. And so far, I've really, really been impressed by Fort Circle Games. They're, they're very much the little publisher that could. And I can't wait to see what they put out next. So far, they've chosen underrepresented historical events, at least in terms of gaming, and it's a fascinating group to watch. That's Votes for Women, designed by Tori Brown, published by Fort Circle Games of 2022. I also showed Walker Skytier Horde. This is the kind of sort of tower defense co-op slash maybe competitive. Anyway, you can play one to three players. The defenders are played by one or two players, and the enemies are played by zero or one players. We played two players cooperatively, 
which is to say two players playing as the good guys. And my initial concern from last week was that although I was very pleased with the degree of modularity, I was also very pleased with the AI, and I was very pleased with the way that it in- involved pseudo-magic-like combat in a in a solo at that time's way, I was a little bit concerned about the paucity of card draws because I felt like I was being given these decks with lots of interesting things in them and I didn't really get to play with them. (laughs) And so that was my concern going in. I was very curious to see how that would manifest on a second playing. Walker, what was your impression of Sky Tier Horde? It felt very much like many other sort of cooperative card games that we've played before. It's very much like a magic, you know, you're protecting these lanes you you know strength versus toughness not much difference there we're definitely under the gun the whole time there was the slow ramp up of mana and trying to decide which cards to put out they didn't seem as though they did very much you know the special abilities on them it seemed awfully dry but this is just one play and the faction that I was playing maybe they that's just what they did i'm not sure well but- it's weird again so few, I was paying attention. Not only do you go through so little of your player deck, you go through so little of the enemy deck as well. And I didn't do a deep dive on the rest of the composition of that enemy deck. We got very strong opponents. You know, we were, we were pulling like four fives where the only things that we could play out were some that were like two twos at best. And so we were like, can you kill this? No, if I spend my entire effort trying to, I, I can't even still slow them down this turn. It's like, oh, oh okay. And so... Difficulty I don't object to, but again, I didn't feel like, maybe that's the sense of dryness that you were alluding to. I didn't feel like I was playing around with a lot of cool stuff by virtue of that combination. Because you didn't get any cards, and normally to stop an enemy, you're going to lose a card. And to gain a card, you have to destroy an enemy. Right. And and usually you have to supplement that one card you played with sort of attachment or a a bonus. So now you've played two cards to take out one enemy that's going to get you one card back. Right. You you see see the... I see the the problem. I'm not really good at math, but I think I see the problem. All right, yeah. Uh, honestly, it's a shame because you said that you thought the cards were dry. I think a lot of the card effects were really, or some of them are really kind of cool. But again, you need to draw them and then you need to be able to play them. And ideally, as you point out in terms of card advantage, you'd like them to survive more than one round. That having been said, uh, that does lead to Skytier Horde's incredible quickness. It's a very, very fast experience. We, I mean, I I keep talking about the difficulty. We almost kind of sort of won. So it's not like we got blown out. Uh, It's a siege type game. The defenders should feel under the gun most of the time. Otherwise, it's going to be lax. I just wish that I would get to see more of the toys that go in an average game rather than feel like I spent the entire game playing with four or five different cards that I've drawn. And that's about it. You've designed all these interesting effects. Let me play with them. But I, I will say, again, that as far as the, yes, it's the standard magic style, strength, toughness, combat, I think this is the best solo game that leverages those kinds of things. You said that there are a lot of co-op card games. There absolutely are. But they don't really have that classic combat system in the same way. Now, that's not necessarily a complaint. It's a very specific thing. It's just when I'm feeling like Regicide, I don't feel like I'm playing a co-op version of Magic. When I'm playing Skytier Horde, I feel like more like I'm playing a co-op version of Magic in that specific sense. I don't want all those blue deck players coming at me saying, no, 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 it's all different. Of course it is, but... And Zeno Shift is too long. It's... I don't know if it's too long, right? But it's it's best with one or two, and yeah. it's best if you want to spend a couple hours doing it, right? Right. I'm glad it feels the same way to you. It feels vaguely similar, but it's at least a quarter to a fifth of, of the length. Yes. 
uh, in terms of, of time reduction. And so, you know, all this being said, despite the fact that I keep complaining about the same thing and the card draw is brutal and it, and it disappoints me, I'll probably pull out it again because again, 20 to 30 minute solo games, I can get behind that. The, the setup is, is quick. The, the rules are easy to remember. Everything's reasonably straightforward. There's a lot there. I just wish there was a little bit more dynamism in terms of hand management and seeing more toys. That's Skytier Horde, designed by Giacomo Neri and Ricardo Neri of Skytier Games. So I streamed a couple of games on Saturday. The first game was Barony by Marc-Andre, put out by Madagot Games. It's one of my old favorites. Sort of like... A, ancient. Ancient. It is, it is older than the, the, a lot of the games we talk about. <laughs> it's true. And uh, so it's, it's very much a sort of blocking type chess game where you are blocking off parts of the map due to the movement restrictions and there is no luck. It's all... You know exactly how far the enemy is away. You know what they're capable of. It's going to take them a turn to, you know, put out a knight. Then they're going to have to move the knight X number of spaces. So you know exactly what's going to happen. I think it was a combination of sort of the map placement and how the mountains and everything turned out. And and the fact that we left one player alone, it played much differently than than I'm normally. Like it ended much quicker than usual. And in an unsatisfying way, it's very unsatisfying. Yeah. That's too bad. Put, Put me in a mood. Anyway. Put you in the mood. Oh yeah. Oh, that's too bad. So that was that was Barony, which I think it was mostly not so much the game. It it was fine, but it's just that it had taken so long to get it to the table finally, and that fact that uh, it was only fine. You know, it was these com- I hear you. combination of things. I hear you. Well, Barony is a dynamic game that that really relies on players getting up in each other's business. I mean, so yeah, as a consequence, sometimes you're going to have unsatisfying sessions. I suppose. And since it ended so quickly, we also played Llama Dice. Llama Dice is always a hit. If you want to see how either of these games played out, it's all on our live channel on YouTube. On the topic of old favorites getting to the table again, I got to play a game of Antica 2 by Matt Gertz. This is the redevelopment of Antica. I love both versions, but Antica 2, I think, is a solid improvement. And sure enough, it was a great return to form. It was, you can tell, my barometer for the fact that this is a well-loved classic by everyone in the group is when people are like, wait, I, I remember playing this. And about two turns, it's like, oh, I remember how great this is. And so lots of recognition and appreciation. I taught it to several new players in the process because one of the great virtues of Antica is how approachable it is. There's very, very simple actions to be done the rondelle and you just go along. The turns are very, very quick. As a consequence of the turns being very, very quick, it scales exceptionally well. So I had a, a table of five people, some of them more experienced hobbyist gamers, some of them less experienced hobbyist gamers, and Antica never fails to please. And it was a lovely experience. I love Antica. Antica is a wonderful game. Speaking of favorites getting to the table, we got to play Tribune. This is Carl Heinschmiel, put out by Spielworks. This is the new edition, Mark. The new edition. Yes, it is the new edition. This was a Kickstarter, and it plays very much like the old edition. They've just put some sort of mini games off to the side that <laughs> uh, that uh, work in with an event deck. So, so they're all all the mini games are sort of blocked off until they come up with the event deck, and they they do very much the same as as most of the other spaces in Tribune do. Yeah, the mini games I could take or leave. The overall event system I could take or leave. I'd have to say that it's a step forward and a step back. The step forward, and I uh, th- these are both things that I underestimated last when we reviewed Tribune, and so consider this in a sort of addendum or coda to our, our review of the new edition when we talked about it. The benefit is is that everything is on one board, and so the timing of everything makes is, is much more transparent because the way it used to work in the older edition, which I think was vastly more physically attractive, 
you did the board, you then went to the top of the main board to do the faction takeovers, which is at the top, and then you went off and you did the sideboard, and you did everything there. So the order confused people to no end. Here, it's very simple. You start at the top left of the board, and you end at the bottom right of the board. <laughs> Just follows normal English reading order. Everything is fine. The disadvantage that I found, though, and I think, I don't know if it was the lighting here at Historic Swag Studios or what have you, the color matching is just all over the place. Player colors are very close to each other. I swear there are three different shades of gray for player pieces, as opposed to the bright primary and and uh, colors that you would see more often in the Fantasy Flight version. The different factions are all muted pastels. Yeah, green and green and, and orange and red. Sorry, and you've light, got you know, light, lime red, and light, detergent yeah. and... You know, it's, oh, light red and dark orange, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how, but the Fantasy Flight slash Heidelberger version, the original one, was simultaneously darker in terms of the board. It actually looked kind of like a city, or at least a sort of vaguely dark representation of a city. Not brass level, right? But definitely on sort of a, the same brass aesthetic. But vastly more readable by virtue of the fact that it was A, larger, and B, the colors were just far more differentiable. Now... Uh, can I import the meeples from that version into the new version of Dragoon? Possibly, and I'm considering it. The other thing is, is that I prefer the player boards, the original. Anyway, we're left to this situation. And the cards. The cards won't fit on the new board. No, the card. You know, you wouldn't be able to bring cards over. But well, at that saying, point, at that I'm point, saying was, we, I'm saying we enjoyed the cards more from the old version. Yes, they had a nice little shape. They were almost tarot size, and they uh, they they had nice little drawings of little peoples. Anyway, so it, it, it's very much a, a question of they're both equivalently good. Of course, this one's slight slightly easier to get, so that's the one to recommend. I just missed... It's one of the situations where no matter what edition I'm going to play, I'm going to miss them. Now, all of that having been said, I realize I've just spent a few minutes complaining, Tribune is my favorite worker placement game. <laughs> it has been for a long time. Extremely cutthroat and competitive. You always feel like you're desperately being pulled in several different directions, not just by virtue of what's on the board, but by virtue of what other people are going to be doing. I'm fighting with Walker over this faction. I'm fighting with Huey over this faction. I need to go get these cards before Dewey gets them. Uh, where do I go? And so it's very, very tense, and I always get this pleasant sense of excitement that I get, the same sense of excitement I get in Antica 2, because they have very similar victory conditions, right? It's kind of halfway between Order Fulfillment and Point Salad. It has the virtues of both and the detriments of neither. There's a variety of different things that can give you victory conditions, and you need to satisfy a certain number on a list. And I really appreciate that element, and it makes me feel like I'm in some sort of very, very tense race with everybody else. It gives me options without overwhelmingly, without making it feel like I'm in some sort of undifferentiated mess of point-mongering. I really like the victory conditions in both Tribune and Antica. Did you actually feel like you were in a race, Mark? Because my point is that... <laughs> Okay, I really, fine. I really feel like this. This is one of the games that veteran, like, sure, additional plays are really going to be beneficial to you. You, you know exactly how to get to those those victory conditions. There's some sort of sometimes there's I don't want to say odd combos. It's not like overly complicated, but the fact that there's like eight different victory conditions and there's different ways to get all of them. People that have played the game before will understand it more and and. Just do better. Absolutely. But I, I, I freely grant you, and this is also a similarity between Antica. So Antica 2 is a no-luck Euro, right? So obviously experience is going to be very, very influential. Tribune as well, experience is very, very influential. I played Tribune more than anybody else at the table, and so naturally I come with a significant advantage. But 
uh, there are still these lovely moments of tension about little conflicts. Like, am I going to be able to get the senators this turn? Am I going to be able to win the card from the auction house and simultaneously be able to afford the thing I need to do later to get the favor of the emperor? And so I, uh, even when it's the case that somebody runs away with the game, there are still these moments of triumph. There are still these short-term goals that you can engage in fights over, at least from my perspective. And so I... It is absolutely the case that if you want a game that some people very much appreciate games that reward a certain level of experience and mastery, some people don't buy or beware. And since Tribune finished up so quickly, we got to play a game of Cockroach Poker. This is designed by Jacques Zemet and published by Line Rampant Imports. And once again, never fails to please. It was a fantastic game of of passing frogs and flies and stink bugs, and it was all a bunch of lies. <laughs> and and bullying. Don't forget the bullying. Oh, lots of bullying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, cockroach poker is delightful. Got to play a game called Karuba. This is by Rudiger Dorn. I'm a big fan of a lot of Rudiger Dorn's work, but ever since he published Istanbul, he's mostly been doing lighter stuff, which is fine. Uh, Karuba, though, is very much... N- uh, not my preferred style of Euro game. It's it's kind of sort of in the same vein as a Knizia design called Take It Easy, which was also republished in a lot of different versions. There's Take It to the Limit. There's Take It. There's there's, there's Take It. Lo- there's lots of different ways to take it. You take it, Walker. Easy. Anyway, uh, the way that these phrasing ga- the, are we still doing that? No, we're not doing phrasing. The way that these games work is that a tile is pulled and everyone pulls the same tile as a consequence. And then you play it in some sort of spatial arrangement. In the case of Karuba, nominally the theme is that you have these adventurers that are sitting around on one half of the board, and then these temples on the other half of the board, and everyone has the same board arrangement, and everyone's pulling the temples, these these tiles in the same order, showing paths, and you want to get your adventurers to the temples as fast as possible uh, to get the greatest number of points. I'm oversimplifying, but broadly speaking, that that's what's on it. And it feels like a positional abstract. You're just trying to make these root connections by placing tiles. The fact that you're evening out the luck and making it so that everyone is effectively playing the same game is kind of cool. It's like it's some of the benefit of a roll and write without actually doing a roll and write. But it does have the the effect of it's still very heads down. Everyone's doing their little solo spatial puzzle. And so it's not necessarily the kind of puzzle that I very much enjoy. And I like a little bit more player interaction other than sitting around and waiting to hear that a Simi got his yellow adventure to the yellow temper. And it's like, oh, well, great. You, you, you did a good job with your tiles. It is, a little, it is a little bit like bingo, right? You know, Precisely. Call out the numbers and then something uh, Structurally, bingo. that's exactly how it was presented to me as well. It's like, just like bingo, I'm going to pull a tile. I'm going to tell you the number of the tile. That's the tile you get. Precisely. I, just have, to, so. I have to say, though, I really enjoy that that style of game, but not frequently. Sure. I Take it to the limit. I really enjoy just sort of, you know, getting these giant, you know, sort of combos together. Sure. And, and, and the fact that everyone sort of has the same sort of chance of doing things and how different everything turns out by the end. I like that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're very much roll and writes before roll and writes were a thing. Although instead of filling out a spreadsheet of various combinatorics of numbers, you're engaged in a kind of spatial connection puzzle. Just That's, that's absolutely legitimate. And I, they're very approachable. They're very, very simple. You can accommodate large player counts. Like, I think, strictly speaking, when you're playing very, the various Take It games, the, the, the player counts can swell very, very large uh, without too much difficulty. And those are absolute advantages. Just not really my thing. So that was Karuba by Rudiger Dorn. Big fan of Rudiger Dorn, though. Published by Haba. Also a big fan of Haba. And lastly, for me, Mark showed me a game called Fealty. This is by R. Eric Royce. 
and put out by Asmati Games. This is a game from the designer of Spirit Island. This was put out before Spirit Island, and this is a very interesting game of sort of area control, I guess you could say. Very much to do with initiative and player order and and making sure you have the best position on the map for when things, you know, sort of do their thing and trying to get most position on the map. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very, very thinly themed positional abstract. I should stress that this is the published game for which I am probably least able to comment, given that it was both designed by a personal friend and published by a personal friend. What did you think of the game, Walker? I thought it was great. I'm looking forward to playing it again because there's two different decks you can play with. And now that you, now that I know exactly how it works, I'm interested to see how it can develop it with future plays. I have to say that I, I will comment that when the game was first explained to me, I thought I was going to strongly dislike it, both because I'm not a huge fan of positional abstracts and because a lot of it is about timing considerations. Every piece you place on the board is going to score during final scoring at a certain time signature. And a lot of the tactics of the game, as well as the strategy, is, well, if I put this 30 here, it's going to claim this territory before the 40 acts. And by virtue of blocking off the 40, then my 80 can hide behind the 30's protection and go hog wild when it's time for the 80 to score. And I first heard that, oh, that sounds clever and something that is far too difficult for my feeble little mind. But the way that you actually play the game of fealty, the decisions are parceled out in, like, you're not given the board and saying, okay, lay everything out. And so it's like, okay, well, if I time it this first, and then this is... no, you've got a hand of cards and you choose one of them. So you're only making these decisions parceled out on an individual level. So despite the fact that it is a very strategic game, it feels very tactical and thus more easy to process for someone of simple minded nature like myself. Then layered on top of this spatial puzzle is in our four player game, we had five boards, squared off boards and four people playing cards you had to play on a different board than everybody else and your pieces could not cross connect. They can't, you can't place a piece on the same row or column as another piece you've already placed. Yes. And when it is your turn to place initiative order again, being determined by the value of the piece, you cannot place on the same board that somebody else has placed this round. So again, if you play your 80 in a given round, it's probably going to be placed last. So you're only gonna have a choice of a couple different boards on which to place it. Can't wait to try it again. That is fealty. Very glad you enjoyed it. Finally, for me, I tried Paperback Adventures again. Paperback Adventures is winning a lot of praise in a lot of different corners, and I can definitely understand why. This is a primarily solo, but you can play two-handed game by Tim Fowers and Sky Larson of Fowers Games. And this is a game that kind of adapts a lot of the structural elements of roguelite games, which I can definitely appreciate, you know, Slay the Spire, Dead Cells, games of that ilk. I love games of that ilk, and I have to say that it borrows those structural elements very, very well. You're accumulating new items, you're accumulating new skills, and various things are happening to you, and you get lots of customizable little bits. And board games have been doing that very well in a lot of different ways for a long time. But the thing you have to ask yourself when approaching Paperback Adventures, and I, well, I understood at the time when I first played it, but I completely understand why it's, it's not really for me, because do you like anagrams? Do you want to make anagrams over and over and over again? Why does Bluetooth fail to work so often? Do I use too many rhetorical questions? What is a rhetorical question, really? Am I stuck in a series of verbal tics? No. I don't like making anagrams. You have a hand of cards. Each card is a letter. Make a word out of it. 
That's not a process I really enjoy. And that's how you play Paperback Adventures. I, st- I, I felt, again, the length. It is a long solo game. When I play solo games, I'm seldom in the mood for a 75 to 90 minute, let alone 120 minute game. Usually when I am, I want something a little bit more narrative with a little bit more arc, something along the lines of a Valiant Defense game or uh, some other form of historical concept or what have you. And if I'm going to be doing that, I don't think I want to be doing the same thing over and over again, which is, again, here's my hand of four, sometimes more cards. Oh, boy, a 90-minute spelling game. Well, yeah, Gee, it, can I borrow it, Mark? Can I borrow yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some people really don't like spelling. I don't really I don't really like anagrams, honestly. I, I don't like Scrabble. I don't like getting a hand of, of letters and being like, make the best word out of, the, out of those things. So it's unsurprising that Paperback Adventures kinds of sort of fall, all falls flat for me. The various puzzle elements about how to maximize your resources in the context of having made the word are only slightly more appealing to me. So you've got your word. There are two different ways you can form it. You can either form it from the first letter forward or the last letter backwards, and each card has two different ways it can be played. Fine. Uh, there's some abilities there. But honestly, it's just, I, 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 I just feel it, it sorts, starts to repeat itself. Now, I was also in a position to replace the completely malfunctioning metal clips for cubes. I just opened my box of Hansa Teutonica, had fond memories of Hansa Teutonica, took out a couple cubes and we're just using cubes as trackers. And I got to say, when you are ditching the components of the original game and using functional cubes, a game of paperback adventures feels effortless in comparison. (laughs) So I was like, the first 20 minutes, honestly, I was like, oh yeah, this game is a breeze. And I'm like, oh, fight after fight after fight after fight, hand after hand after hand after hand. There's a lot of variety there, and again, I feel like I'm seeing more of it So, to compare to Sky Tier Horde. I feel like I'm getting a better sense of variety out of a game of Paperback Adventures, but honestly, it just starts to wear on me after a while. I'm like, I just, I, I don't care about making another, like, wins or loins or whatever I'm going to spell from the cards that I've got from my deck. Just, so, if you like messing around with anagrams, and you're willing to play a solitaire game of that length and computational and cognitive intensity, I can completely understand why Paperback Adventures is for you. It is not for me. So, I mean, long story short, if you're a commissioner and overlord, if you want Paperback Adventures, you know my number. That was Paperback Adventures by Tim Fowers and Sky Larson and Fowers Games. Final note, Fowers Games makes lovely, lovely artwork, but their rule books are, so far in my experience, terrible. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first off, some of you have already noticed that we have started airing ads here at So Very Wrong About Games. And if you're interested in ad-free versions of the podcast, everybody at the uncut swagger or swagger to spare levels of the Patreon has access to ad-free versions already. No need to change. It's already part of the feed. And I just want to note that we have a certain degree of control over who gets to air ads on our podcast. If there's ever an ad that you think is an unfortunate association or that you think raises problematic aspects, we've already ruled out anything related to the industry. We're never, ever going to take any money from anyone remotely associated with the hobby gaming or board gaming or role-playing or tabletop industries whatsoever. But if there's anything that comes up that gives you pause or gives you concern, please do reach out and contact us. We would very much like to hear those concerns and possibly adjust our policies going forward. Mark, just last week, we were talking about game mechanism and rondelles and Shipyard from 2009. It was a CGE game, and now they're playing on reprinting it this year with some maybe some extra pieces and and stuff. They can always fit a couple this, more rondelles into it. This is a, a Vladimir Suki uh, design, and it's now going to be put out by Delicious Games, Shipyard, the Rondell game. I'm kind of looking forward to it. Shipyard did have some cute things. You get to lay out tiles and kind of build your ship and, and bedazzle your ship a little bit and run your ship through little uh, through testing races and stuff. There were some cute elements. I mean, I didn't, I, I felt that it ran out of steam rather quickly. No pun intended. My apologies. No, no, I, that was accidental. I, I, I heard it. I heard it. It was this happening, but it was too late to stop it. I just couldn't stop it. Gotcha. Anyway, I'm interested in seeing what they've done to change it, if anything. Walker, the Battle of Versailles. This is not a historical concept game. This was a delightful fashion battle of the 1970s when five American fashion designers sought to challenge the supremacy of French fashion designers. So two teams of five fashion... I, I, I read about this on Board Game Geek News. I love it already. Two teams of fashion designers of five. So like Americans like Oscar de la Renta and Bill Blass versus like French designers like Yves Saint Laurent and Christian Dior. And they, they, they it was... It was a big cross-Atlantic battle about who is going to be ascendant over the fashion world. It was marvelous. Let me just read you some of the things you get to do. Uh, so you get to show off your best dresses. You get to attract popular celebrities. You get to ignore your opponents by spreading bad gossip. And I was like, all of this sounds amazing. And then the final line managed to sap almost all of my enthusiasm right away because they also compete to contribute more than their opponent to the reconstruction of the Palace of Versailles. And I'm like... Now it sounds like every other Euro game. Before, I was putting on a fashion show and, and talking we... trash about your dresses, and then I'm just constructing a historical building. Hey, and who has more cubes in the church this turn, Mark? Exactly! <laughs> you had me. You had me completely mind, heart, body, and soul. And then, you... well, I'm still curious. <laughs> I'm still curious to see the Battle of Versailles. I mean, that's just, I live I live for stuff like that. I'm not much into, in, into high fashion but if if you're going to import this grandiose tone to what was basically a series of competing fashion shows, I'm there in a heartbeat. Finally, 
A last reminder that there is an ongoing poll. This will be the last week where I'm accepting responses for a potential swag get-together slash small gaming con. A link is available on Twitter, on Facebook, and the episode notes. Even if you have no interest in attending such a con, please do spend the 30-ish seconds necessary to answer the questions because even people who are disinterested in such a thing uh, provide excellent, valuable feedback and context for the results that I'm getting. So I would appreciate that a great deal. And thank you very, very much to those who've already participated. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is all that is new is old. (laughs) What do you mean by that, Walker? Well, we're looking for, is there a reason why this game was made? I think this game Mm, came to the front because we have just recently played Great Western Trail Argentina. Yes. And I'd asked the question, is there enough difference in this game that warranted this new edition? I remember the dialogue happening differently, actually. What happened was we were trying to, because again, uh, Huey and I, who had played with you, uh, Great Western Trail Argentina, we were comparing it to our recollections of Great Western Trail because Fister games are one of those things where they're sufficiently complicated that some of the details seep out of my mind the moment the game is done, which is not to say that I don't like them. Again, I, I'm a fan of Great Western Trail. But we were talking about the boats in Argentina, and the boats kind of sort of take the place of the trains. I mean, there's still trains in, Argent- in the Argentina version, but they kind of sort of take the place there because rather than delivering your cows to the train, you're delivering your cows to the boat. And we were both commenting that's like, eh... I think I preferred how the trains work. Uh, the, the boats weren't as satisfying. And your immediate response was, well, they had to make something different to justify the new edition. And then I think there was a pause and we both kind of had the same thought, which was, so did they have to make a new edition? <laughs> this is So this is separate, of course, from whether they should have made a second edition of the original Great Western Trail. We can get back to that later because I have thoughts on that too. Yeah, so this is, like I said, I have two main topics. I think there might be some other subtopics, but... This is not necessarily about new editions of a game or not so much about because a game has become completely unavailable that they sort of put it back out again. It's mostly sometimes a completely different game, maybe a different name, maybe, you know, uh, Zombicide colon something something. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. More on that later. But (laughs) yes. So, So what are your thoughts specifically with respect to Great Western Trail Argentina? Do you think, well, let me ask the, the, the antecedent question. Do you care about what the genesis of the project is? Because some people really seem to care, right? Some people really seem to care whether it's the case that Egbert Spiel or whoever else goes to Fister and say, so this, this trail is doing gangbusters. We hear it's pretty great. Do you think you can iterate on this and give us another great Western trail? Versus... Fister being like, I think there could be many trails that could be great. I mean, West applies everywhere. And to my mind anyway, I'm not really sure I care so long as the the output is fine. And I don't necessarily see a big correlation between cynical cash grabs and and games being terrible or vice versa. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Walker? Oh, I think the game was very popular. I think it got run through a lot more paces than other games did. And this could be just a... They did a second edition of Great Western Trail, which I think they wanted to stay a little truer to the original and just sort of like update the components, make it a little more user-friendly. Make sure that the trail went in the right direction. Just so. And with this newer one, completely changed things that he felt weren't working quite right. Well, it's weird because he'd already had a chance to do that, he being Alexander Pfister. And by extension, of course, all the developers and publishers and playtesters and so forth. Because it's not just, again... 
it's not an auteur theory, but when we when we talk about the designer here, often we're talking about it in shorthand for a larger number of people that contributed to the work. The first expansion to Great Western Trail, to a large extent, was meant to balance out some of those issues to begin with. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. Because, again, I'm no expert on the game, but my perception was that some of the criticisms of Great Western Trail in particular, we're spending a lot of time on Great Western Trail, we can move on, was that it was all about, you know, just delivering the best cows to market and just wash, rinse, repeat, which, I, parenthetically, I don't really have a problem with. And the first expansion of Great Western Trail completely blew that up and made it so that you could, you call it a programming game where you're designing microchips. Uh, but suddenly that becomes this all-important sub-aspect. Anyway, so now there's two different flavors of how to solve that issue if you think there is an issue. The Argentinian version and the microchip version. Just seems strange to have. I guess the other way to the other way to pose the question is: Could a Great Western Trail Argentina have been an expansion? I don't think so. I think it was mostly, like I said, I think when we talked about last week, Great Western Trail is more like you pretty well get to do everything you want because on the way you're going to be stopping at all these different places and you're going to be putting out buildings. You're going to be, you know, going to the train. You're going to be advancing on all the different tracks in Argentina. You don't need to do all of those things. You can bypass the buildings. You can cycle through your, you can go with a lot less cows than usual. You can start filling the islands. You can, uh, concentrate on certain aspects of the game as opposed to just doing everything that you would normally do in Great Western Trail. Fair enough. In my opinion. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you don't need to append that. I know, I know. <laughs> obviously, everything we say is our opinion, Walker. No one thinks we're saying anything different. So Zombicides, let's talk about Zombicides since it's on the top of my list. <laughs> sure. There are now like four or five, six different versions of Zombicide. Uh, at least. And they're, they're going back. The next, I think the next CMON Kickstarter is going to be Series 2 of uh, the fantasy version. Of Black Plague. Yeah, so it's going to be Black Plague, more Black Plague. Oof. Well, you like Black Plague. I did. I, you did. I did. Not I do. Well, I don't have it anymore, but I did. Okay. When I have, yes, it's, but I think by far I haven't got. Why if though? Because here's the thing: because it, there's just so much already. Like, how much more right, do you but really it, need? But sometimes quality has a quantity all its own. Sorry, I, I completely inverted that. Sometimes quantity has a quality all its own. And if if one of the great things about and I'm not engaging in the replayability myth. I'm not saying that diversity of characters necessarily guarantees replayability or anything like that. But if part of the joy of of Zombicide is that there are all these different kinds of things you can shoot at and all these different kinds of, of heroes you can have. Wouldn't twice as many be nice? No. No? <laughs> There's a precise tipping point, exactly. and that precise tipping point was the end of the first but, Kickstarter content, and that's that no more? Plus, they have done a great job. Like, almost every week, almost, there is a new scenario out for either regular Zombicide sure. or... They, they have been supporting it, and I'm, I'm quite surprised. You know, I mean, they're doing a great job of, of giving you content all the time and just having, like, there was at least 50 different characters in Black Plague. Like, like, do you what's really the need ideal? another 50, 100 characters to choose from? We don't need it's, any it's, characters in any Zombicide. Four, These are already five, luxury goods. Your like, stats what? are already so basic. You know, you're going to fiddle with the numbers a little bit more? And no. I think... <sighs> I think you're positing a scarcity where there isn't one because when, especially when it comes to Zombicide survivors, basically the only thing that differentiates them is the special ability. I think there can be effectively an infinite number of special abilities. I think you get a new person on staff, a new intern, 
you know, get Sally or Timmy on board and they might have like each four or five decent ideas about new characters. And there you go. I suppose. I can't believe I'm <laughs> look, I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not defending necessarily the practice of acquiring large quantities of these games, right? We're very, very much on record. We're kind of past that stage in our stage of collecting and stage of, of, of being hobbyists. But for those that, setting aside the environmental concern, which is a huge one, right? But those who are genuine enthusiasts about whatever flavor of Zombicide or all flavors of Zombicide, I won't begrudge them another giant bucket of, of 50 characters or what have you. Yeah, but for the level of play that you get, like... Well, the level of play that we get, sure... But there are some people who play the crap out of these things, or there are some people who enjoy just having them. Yeah, I suppose. So look, so look I'm a collector, right? To a certain extent, I'm a collector. I'm not a, a collector like that person who was covered on the BBC that's got 50,000 board games in their, their their basement. I'm not like Sid Saxon, who's got thousands and thousands of games and, and, and reams and things like that. But I'm not too far away. I'm not at that point, but I'm not too far away from that kind of person who say, for example, be like, look, I have all these bookshelf copies of the Avalon Hill games series. I used to be that. I used to have like, ooh, I'm not a huge fan of this game. Like like the gladiatorial combat game. It wasn't very good. It was not a good game, but it was another Avalon Hill bookshelf game. And so it would stand on the bookshelf next to all my other Avalon Hill bookshelf games. I've emerged past that stage of collection. Now I only have the three bookshelf games that I enjoy. But what's wrong with... Uh, this is the same question I'm, I'm constantly asking. If you really like, say, Great Western Trail, because, again, the, 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 large, the, the large amount of plastic poses additional concerns. If you're a huge fan of Great Western Trail, why? what's wrong with you holding on to your first edition copy and having it sit next to your second edition copy and you having joy in having collected all the versions of Great Western Trail? What's wrong with that? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you can go get your Funko Pops. Sure. And you can have your whole wall of of factory sealed Funko Pops. Sure. And and you have a great time with that. Why are you being and so? If, if I critique uh, Funko Pops, yeah, which I don't, yeah, I will tell you why you don't need some Funko Pops. And you why don't you need, need some any others. Funko Pops, and you don't need any board games at all. I mean, I, I'm so confused. How did this become entirely about consumerism? Like, <laughs> because you're talking about getting even more of something that. That it will really add no extra gameplay, and that's what we're here to do. We're talking about gameplay and games. We are and, and getting but, more stuff for such a light game but, as Zombicide. But I am not in the position. At least I don't think I'm in the position of criticizing somebody. I'm not who derives. I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm criticizing <laughs> the choice of putting out more stuff. Well, they're putting out more stuff because people are going to buy it. Well, there we go. <laughs> I don't know that there is a moral consumerism, like 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 we like sure, we, but I I don't know that there's a moral obligation. Okay, so say you're 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 sitting on so why is why is Zombicide again setting aside the environmental concern, right? I realize that's doing a lot of of lifting, right? But setting that aside, what is the difference between more Zombicide Black Plague and Great Western Trail Second Edition? I would argue that more Zombicide is yet more defensible because there's lots of new things that aren't even retreading anything that happened in the original and that aren't meant to address shortcomings of the original, like, again, the trail going in the wrong direction. The second edition came with the expansion, also came with all of the changes and the updates. Sure, And sure. the original was a little harder to get. This came all together, and so people who wanted Great Western Trail, I, be, I doubt there was very many people who already owned the first edition 
bought the second edition Ooh. comparatively to people who didn't have I, the first one. I don't know about that, man. Because that, that's a whole separate issue about, again, like my position with Tribune. Right? I had the original version of Tribune. Do I get the new edition? It's only slightly different. Most of the differences are cosmetic. I, I ended up getting it largely for review purposes. Uh, but I don't know what would have happened if I it w- would have happened if I didn't need it for review purposes. I, I think you're drawing I, a distinction here without much of a difference, and I think you're underestimating the the extent to which the people who are acquiring duplicative versions of their Fister games, whether it's Great Western Trail first to second edition, and then also getting Argentina, and who have Mombasa or played Mombasa and now get Sky Mines as well, and who tut tut and like to look down their nose at the Zombicide players, but the Zombicide players are getting more new stuff proportionally than the Great Western Trail players. I don't know, man. It could be true, but I did not bring up Zombicide for more Black Plague stuff. It was mostly due to all the different editions of of Zombicide. That is true. There, I... I, Again, if I can imagine a use case... Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Your average human being regardless of their level of wealth, but especially if they don't have the same level of wealth that we have, if they saw my basement, they might be appalled. (laughs) I don't mean like this guy's weird or that's strange. That's not what I would do with my life. I mean, appalled, (laughs) like taken aback and shocked at such an ostentatious display of consumerism. And that is why I try to be a little bit more understanding when looking at other people in the hobby and how they decide uh, and what they decide to do with their disposable income. Now, we keep straying off to to consumers. It's true. We're not talking about consumers. <laughs> We're talking about the companies that put out these games and and should they be putting them out? Are they different enough to warrant Making these people who they know have a collector, you know, mentality, mentality, yeah. Yeah. just putting this stuff out because they know people will buy it and not give them the the girth of of content that they can. Uh, oh, well, OK. So you're positing there. And I think this is an open question, an opportunity cost. Right. If Simon weren't doing more Zombicide Black Plague, if. Uh, Fister and his his publishers and his editors weren't giving us Argentina or second edition. They would instead do something else that would be comparatively more innovative, more novel, more different. I I don't know that that's true, first of all, uh, because they have to spend less on marketing. They have to spend less on development. They spend less time on game design. I mean, you start with the lattice work of, of original, like game design is an iterative process in a way that say literature and movies are not. And so if you can benefit from those previous iterations, you're going to. True. But that's what we're here to talk about, right? You keep telling me what I'm here to talk about. And I'm, I'm, no, just... I'm just saying that we, cause we know they're in it for the money. Sure. Right. And, and I have no problem with that, but I mean, that's, you say that's, that. that's what we're talking. Are they, are these multiple copies of Zombicide just for the money? Yes. Or is there something there that actually will fulfill you with different types of gameplay? But why did... Okay, here here I think might be the central disagreement. It can be both, as far as I'm concerned. The motivation on the part of Simon doesn't have to be noble, altruistic, or inspired by the beauty of, of innovative game design. No, it's... And, the, and the customers don't have to be motivated by any set of motivation other than some idea that will satisfy some desire that they have. 
again, setting aside environmental concerns, it's just a big F. But, and so the idea that it's not for you and it's not for me and we might regard it as derivative, I don't see why people have to be so cynical about it. The profit imperative can redound to the benefit of, pe- of everyone involved. But if it? it's a case, if it's a case, now I, I, I'm open to the fact that the facts may be different. The idea that the facts may be different. If it is actually the case that Simon says, well, Time for time to pump the zombicide cash cow again. What do you got, Timmy and Sally? And Timmy and Sally go and get, you know, with with no inspiration whatsoever because it's their job. They pump out a whole bunch of new zombicide characters that may not be thoroughly new, but a little bit new, right? New enough. And then, you know, you run the Kickstarter and people pump, pump in their $4 million or whatever. And people... Enough people enjoy what they get on whatever basis, and Simon makes its money, and they enjoy their stuff. Where's the harm? Other, other than petroleum byproducts, which I keep saying. No harm. So I don't see what the problem is. It doesn't have to be new enough. It can be the same old thing. Then I, I'm, I am unsure of what we're doing here then. <laughs> well, we aren't necessarily in that group. But I don't know that why we would have anything negative to say about those people in that group. I think from a design perspective... You keep saying the people in the group. I'm not saying anything about the people in the group! <laughs> Walker? I'd like to talk to Walker now. Is Walker home? Is, 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 is Walker there? People so, can spend their money on whatever they want. I agree. Now, from a design perspective, I agree with you that it doesn't move the hobby forward, right? Okay, there we go. Back, back on page now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just... <laughs> in an ideal world, I fully grant you that in an ideal world, we'd be able to have, you know, the satisfaction on the part of the consumer and the the, the, the profit imperative on the on the part of the publisher, coupled with... Hell, let's, let's go for the whole hog, right? The ideal case scenario. Coupled with genuine inspiration, a genuine aesthetic vision, and design innovation... And genuinely interesting game concepts being moved forward and everyone in the hobby profits. Right? Agreed. That's the ideal case scenario. But I don't... I I guess the difference is I don't see the necessity of putting the perfect in opposition to the good. Well, because if they keep making money just doing this, then there is no incentive for them to put in the work on what you... on innovative and interesting things. So one one of the virtues of this new... Uh, gatekeeperless market that we have, where every Isaac Childress is one Kickstarter away from having the number one game on Board Game Geek, is that we can have this kind of market separation of people who use Kickstarter as a cash cow and for people who use Kickstarter as an opportunity to get that small indie thing together. Like, you can have, if I were a lich man, coexist on Kickstarter next to Zombicide 27th printing. And that's great. And if I were a lich man is, I mean, it seems to me to be radically different than anything else the market's ever seen before. <laughs> I could be wrong. And ultimately the, the, this, this pressure to innovate sometimes though, is at odds with genuinely what the market needs. And let me, let me give you an example. All right. Let me talk about a game that you hate. Let's talk about cosmic encounter for a second. All right. Cosmic Encounter is an example of a reprint slash new edition. So there have been so many editions of Cosmic Encounter. Like, stretching back from the original Eon edition, there's been so many different publishers that have had the rights to so many different versions. All that Fantasy Flight did 
when they published Cosmic Encounter, certainly the base game, they started to branch out a little bit more with some of the expansions, but the base edition of Cosmic Encounter, all they did was, we just want to clarify what's been going on before. We don't really want to rock the boat. We just want to make sure that people understand how this works. And so all they wanted to do was resolve confusion and timing problems and conflicts and things like that. And I would argue that that kind of new edition, which involves zero innovation at all, is sometimes more valuable than a new edition that completely reinvents the wheel. And so I'm not necessarily certain that, especially given that our hobby is both, it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of both an art and a craft. It's, 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 but at the same time, there are technical aspects to it. I mean, a lot can go on in, in, in different editions. Does that make sense? It does. Let's go for some other games. We have Brass, Brass Lancashire, and the original. Uh, no, Lancashire is the original. No, the, the, what's the first one he did? Oh, Age of Industry was the second one he did. Oh, really? No, the way it worked was he designed Brass. And then, uh, this is under Warfrog, and then Warfrog published, well, Warfrog slash Treefrog, I can't remember which one it was called at the time, Brass, and then he published Age of Industry, and then Roxley got the rights, and they published Bl- Brass Lancashire, which was the original Brass, and Brass Birmingham, which was the new one. So I would, uh, I, I, so then then there's the, the issue of, like, where do redesigns fall into this spectrum, right? Because Age of Industry is not Brass 2nd Edition, but in a certain sense it is. And Brass Birmingham, to a certain extent, isn't Brass 2nd Edition, but in another sense it is. (laughs) And the market is very much spoken. Like, Brass Lancashire is... People do not play that nearly as much as Brass uh, Birmingham. To the same extent, Age of Industry never really took off, but at least it's sufficiently different. Oh, so they're all they're all very similar, though. Yes, they are. It's true. I guess part of the problem is I'm I really like exploring those subtle differences. I'm not really in a position to to yeah. But do the, can subtle differences just be expansions or modules of the same game? Ah, but Age of Industry has both. Yes, <laughs> the other mod- Yeah, sorry. Uh, you're an- you're asking a serious question, and I'm answering not seriously. I, I agree with you that wherever possible, expansion should do these things, right? Like, when it's time to reprint a game, when a game is hard to get, and obviously reprints are a separate issue entirely, but when it's time to reprint a game, I don't necessarily uh, favor the automatic assumption that what you need is a second edition. A second printing will often do just as well. And sometimes I prefer the idea that you're going to introduce an expansion to try to rebalance the original game. Like, a related question to this is, what do you do with uh, uh, balance fixes that are not resolved through expansions? The classic David Serlin model of, oh, I decided that I really need to rebalance these characters three months after I published the game. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to sell an upgrade pack. <laughs> that, I th- that I think we can agree is a little bit exploitive. Same thing, the Guards and Atlantis and Guards of Atlantis 2 did the same sort of thing, was you know, a bunch of character rebalancing and updating stuff. Yeah, but there it's weird. Like, So we could talk about, we use these same terms to cover radically different circumstances, right? So again, going back to things like Brass, or if you want, let's, let's call Brass Birmingham Brass 2nd Edition, okay? So the difference between Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham ain't nothing like the difference between Guards of Atlantis 1 and Guards of Atlantis 2. The, the amount of additional content and the amount of rules changes are huge and you can't, they're not even in the same ballpark. And even games that literally call themselves second edition, you know, going back to Great Western Trail, it's, it's, 
it kind of muddies the waters because we're using the same terms for radically different projects and that are driven by radically different concerns, right? To a large extent, uh, the, the, the desire to have a second edition of Great Western Trail was partially motivated by the fact that the original was going out of print and hard to get. Guards of Atlantis has always been hard to get because he just publishes the one printing from Kickstarter and then never again, because that's just the way that it works. It was driven by pure inspiration, the fact that new stuff kept coming out. And then we have a new edition of something that's actually coming out right now, Yellow and Yancey, compared to the the first edition. Yes. Hwang. Which I don't think there's going to be much rules difference, just the components are going to be much different. Oh, yeah, the components are so different. I don't understand. Like, I, I agree with you that the drive to introduce change to sort of justify new additions can be a problematic one in terms of the results of the final product, right? Would the world have been better off with a straight reprint of the Grail edition of Yellow and Yangtze as compared to the version that Phalanx is putting out in terms of Huang? I think quite probably. Like there are lots of second editions where it's like, well, we got to change something. Let's uh, let's put in some minis. Just not nearly as good. And I think Huang might be a good example of that. And there's lots of examples of sort of like a core mechanism that works very well, and then a bunch of different iterations of that like 51st state and then imperial settlers oh sure and then the master set and then uh empires of the north yep all games that are very similar but a lot the- of a lot of war game series tom david thompson's valiant defense series the ocs series some of the the card driven war games even certainly the ones by uh I, I say, yeah it in those instances though at least there you're gonna go from setting to setting Right. If you're going to completely retheme something, that often seems to justify it far more than it does. Like contrast that having been said, contrast the difference between Fifty First State Master Set and Empires of the North, or indeed uh, any of the the Empires versions from Portal, versus say Airland and Sea, the one with animals and the one without animals. <laughs> of course, they're they're the exact same games. I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, Spies, Lies, and Supplies also is now having its critter version. Of course. Uh, it is uh, Flies, Lies, and Supplies. Because, you know, it's animals, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Anthropomorphic, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, there's there's going to be a campaign system. Don't worry. <laughs> Probably not. But it's, it's weird how a different coat of paint can make all these things seem... A lot better. Like, obviously, 51st State and Empires in the North are different. One has cute little super deformed people, and the other has rampaging marauders. So, clearly, they're different. Then we have a game that one happens in space and one happens underwater. The Crew. Two different games. Maybe you could have just had an expansion that had the, the new deck. Yeah. It's harder to get upset about small box games, It's though. true. I mean... Honestly, like, how much would a small box, like, would you have been willing to pay $15 for a small box expansion of the crew? What about $15 for an entirely new copy of the crew? (laughs) Same thing with um, Micro Macro Crime City, right? There's now been, there there are going to be four different maps. How easy would it have been to just, like, all that there is is just a box. The rest is just the map in the case files. So you might as well just keep putting them out as different boxed, boxed games. Uh, Voyages of Marco Polo, one and two. Yeah, it's weird. I, I I so disliked two in comparison to one. I'm not like that. That was a genuinely different game. I don't know what drove it. 
again under the, from the perspective of, of of crass commercialism all the way to genuine interest on the part of the designer. Not that I think that that has any necessary moral or aesthetic value. Then we have the two Kalis games that are radically different, but oh yeah, very much sort of under the same ilk. Yeah, and it's also different when they're separated by such a period of time, it's right? True. Because Kalis and and the next edition of Kalis were separated by very very many years. And despite the fact that Kalos was still in print, the one one game where I, I think does this a lot uh, in a way that I didn't really approve of as a user was Agricola. Like Agricola was still very much in print when they came up with their revised edition. You could get copies of Agricola, no problem. And for a while, you had the situation where you could find first edition Farmers of the Moor, but the revised edition hadn't come out yet. And then the revised edition of Farmers of the Moor sold out. And so it was this bizarre situation where, to a certain extent, this is going to happen whenever there's a large number of expansions for a base game project and you move into a second edition. But now there's the big box on top of that, and that complicates matters. Well, what what Carcassonne went through, like how many different editions and which expansions are for which edition. Oh, boy. And and Catan had the same problem as well. Quest for Eldorado. Right, yeah. two oh, different yeah. two different lines, two different card sizes, two different artists. I'm glad they're finally consolidating it. The quest for El Dorado persisted far longer than I thought it would, because you know, say what you want about Catan, at least they always relaunched it. It's like, okay, this is the new one, right? This is the one we're working with. Quest for El Dorado had a period of over a year where there were two different editions entirely and incom- incompatible expansions. It was wild. Then we have every single roll and write being exactly the same. <laughs> Let's Ooh. not let's not Ooh. engage in too many uh, oh, wait, I'll, I'll hit Walker. them both at the same time. Okay. That, way, okay. that way all of the hate mail can come up. Okay. Every every 18xx game exactly the same. Ooh. I know. Right? Yeah, come at me, bro. <laughs> I didn't say that. That, that wasn't me. Blow, blood on the clock tower, exactly like werewolf. <laughs> oh yeah. Roll it in. All right. Back to some actual oh, ones. No. How about Sentinels the Sentinels the Multiverse in the yes. new edition? Well, there have been three editions now. Three different printings. Yeah. And here again, it's the same thing. I, I We are huge fans of that game, and neither of us have, have put any effort into looking at or acquiring the third edition. That's how burnt out we are. That's true. <laughs> there, there's a certain, you know, it, in other contexts, it's a sunk cost fallacy, but in our case, it's a legitimate sunk cost. Like, we, we have all the stuff. We're not going to pay more money to have a less complete version of the thing we already have. It's just not going to... Not going to do it. We have Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion, and Frosthaven. Those at least have new scenarios and new classes. They do. They're still new stuff. So if, if you like the core system, you can always get, like, when it's more stuff, when there's not duplicative, when there's, when there's precious little duplication, I think it's just in a different class, and I'm willing to give them far more far more stuff. Uh, there, I think it's more like the zombie side situation. Even, even more so because there's the new campaign elements. Still haven't played Frosthaven. We need to play Frosthaven, Walker. It's true. We have them. We need to start playing it. Mm-hmm. I have Battlestar and Unfathomable written here, but then I remembered we're talking about board games, so let's not talk about those. Um, <laughs> should people talk about Orleans and Altiplano? Yeah, there I think they're different enough that I'm willing to give it. Like, it's weird. There's this subtle thing, right? Is it different enough? Yeah. And I think in the case of Orleans and Altiplano, you start with the same core idea of bag building, but even then they use the bag building slightly differently. And then there's always the Agricola and Caverna yep. comparisons. But Well, fortunately, the expansions have further helped differentiate them, the two product lines, right? They now, they started out different. Whether it was different enough is, is subject to interpretation, but now they're really different, all told. And then Awari, I'm not 
I'm not familiar with all the different ones that came before Awari, but you know very much. So there's like four or five. Oh yeah. Web of Power, Han, China, Awari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it's, yeah. Subtle rule differences here and there. That's one of those instances where Web of Power went out of print and then China went out of print and then then Han got published. I think Awari was, Awari and Han are the only two editions that I think were in print at the same time, albeit in different markets. Yeah, that that's a little, again, a little unfortunate, a little bit like the Quest for Eldorado situation where different publishers were doing slightly different things with the same core idea. Not great for the consumer, no. Certainly not if you have any completionist tendencies. Speaking of completionist tendencies, how about Spirit Island and Spirit Island Horizons? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there at least, if, if, if you look at the product line and you say, because there, there are zero rules changes whatsoever, you have to say, how much are you willing to pay for a new spirits, right? And if you compare how much the spirit expansion packs cost, if you can get it, certainly from cheap target retail, it turned out to be a good bargain for me. Now, I had easy access to it. A lot of Canadians don't. A lot of Europeans don't yet. Uh, so th- that's more of a distribution issue. So there I think it's more just, you know, an expansion that is distributed strangely rather than the new, new edition per se. Had there been rules changes, that I think would have been a nightmare, borderline a borderline nightmare for consumers. Kind of like how I was very fr- – going back to Gloomhaven, I, I'd like to retract some of my previous comments – some of the rules changes and absences in Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion were a bit frustrating. Like how you technically couldn't use classes from core Gloomhaven in Jaws of the Lion. So you're locked into those four Jaws of the Lion classes. You know, that made it feel a little bit less like more Gloomhaven stuff and kind of like you were, you know, the side thing that was more limited. So I'm glad they didn't do that with Spirit Island and I hope they never do. They have the standalone expansions. Xenoshift is what I want to talk about. We sort of mentioned it earlier. Mm, and I think yes. they did a great job with that because they introduced new role, new rules and bounced it out in a little yep. way, but still allowed you to do all of the old, bring in all the old cards at the same time. Yeah, and if you just wanted to use the, the, the base game with the new rules, you could do that. They were very, very clear. Like, look, we here are some minor adjustments that we think improve the game flow. Uh, download the new rules and use them. I mean, anytime you're going from a legit first to second edition in terms of rule changes, I think you should have as much as possible the design goal of doing that. I think, again, as much as possible, you should have the design goal of offering free errata packs when you can't do it just from online editions. Sadly, free doesn't really exist in this industry anymore, what with shipping costs going up the wazoo. You do see a lot of Kickstarters having, you know, the upgrade pack for $15 or 50 bucks if it's a lot of stuff, you know, like a whole bunch of new cards, things like that. I, the last game I thought that did that was Tainted Grail. Tainted Grail, the upgrade pack was 40 to $50. Sometimes it's not possible. Again, Guards of the Land is 1 to Guards of the Land is 2. You just can't do it that way. But ideally, wherever possible, I think you should do it that way. So uh, to a certain extent, a trick shot, you can do that. You can play the second season rules with the first season components. And I think the publishers should be more, uh, there should be greater pressure on publishers to do things in that way. So that, that that's one area where I do think that we should exert some pressure and, and, and some degree of criticism on market forces. A lot of more examples here, but I think we've talked about it enough. There's the one example of when it is too expensive to pay the IP cost or they've lost the license and then the game is reprinted ah. without that sort of veneer of the IP. And Rex is what for Dune. Yes, yes. During the great they also but they also considerably changed the rules. 
So the Dune reprint is an interesting case where, unlike Cosmic Encounter, they didn't do the thing that they should have done. Because Dune, the original Avalon Hill design, was a competing mess of, do you play with the advanced rules? Do you play with the optional rules? Which optional rules? What, what settings do you use? A whole bunch of ambiguities in the main rulebook that various communities had adopted different s- solutions for. And when Gale Force 9 reprinted Dune as actually Dune, they could have done the legwork that Fantasy Flight did with Cosmic Encounter, but they didn't. And a lot of those ambiguities, not all of them, but a lot of them still persisted. And so I wish they'd done that. And Rex was a fascinating case where, well, we'd like to republish the game, but we don't have a license, so let's change the setting and change the rules all in one. <laughs> Would have been interesting if they'd done a straight reprint, but in the in, with the, the Rex setting, with the straight reprint of the rules. I wonder how well it would have done. Still probably not as well. I mean, people rave about how Dune Dune is. I'm not a Dune fan, so I wouldn't know, but it's an open question. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Please do take care, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.